and pray now that you would deepen us through our understanding of the word and that there would be a commitment that we take on uniquely today as we consider that word, that we as a church might respond to the trust that has been given to us and that the roots that are watered and that are encouraged by this time together would bear fruit. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ and pray that the truth of the scriptures would be made clear to them. We pray for those of us who know you as Savior and are seeking to walk with you faithfully. I pray that you would help us to understand the calling that is ours and meet with us here for the glory of your name through Christ we pray. Amen. There is a lot going on in this church. Central to this activity is the teaching, the defense, and the impartation of God's written word. This ministry of the word involves the older generations teaching and entrusting the Bible to younger generations. This ministry of the word involves the diligent study and faithful proclamation of God's word to the assembly. And this ministry includes, indeed, in a unique sense, the equipping of our elderly members to die well. There's a lot going on in this church, and there should be. The ministry of God's word in the life of a local church is a stewardship of utmost importance. The Apostle Paul stressed this stewardship with Timothy, his disciple, and his delegate to the church in Ephesus here as we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3 today. And Paul's instructions are of vital significance to us as an assembly. We notice, first of all here, beginning in chapter 3, that in your salvation we must hold fast to the inheritance of God's Word, beginning at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So just by way of summary, he says, you've learned the Bible from godly, faithful people who love you. Then you came to embrace God's revealed word as the living truth. Hearing it, discerning it, coming to understand it, you embraced it as God's word. And now, Timothy, cling to that inheritance. For your eternal salvation rests in the Savior revealed in this inherited body of truth. Let's dig down now a little deeper into verses 14 and 15. Notice verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have believed. As for you, parallels verse 10, you, however. Then in verses 1 through 9, Paul exposes the decadent culture and the false teachers that are influencing the Ephesian church. In verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds Timothy that he has patterned his Christian life after the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his, conduct, his teaching, his conduct, his aim of life, his 
patience, his love, his steadfastness, and his suffering for Christ. Notice verse 12 then, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So in stark contrast that, you see they are deceiving and being deceived, but as for you. In stark contrast to the false teachers in a godless culture, Timothy must persevere in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That body of truth that God has revealed that you have come to trust. He must hold fast to the word of God revealed in sacred scriptures, what we call the Bible. He must do so against the snarling teeth of a world relentlessly attacking God's word at every opportunity. Now, just time out here for a moment. Let's think of what's happening. This is not the instruction of a pastor to a middle school student who is doubting her faith, or to a high school junior lured into a pattern of sin by his workmates. This is the instruction of an apostle to a pastoral leader of one of the most established churches in Christendom at the time. Now, Timothy was young. His reputation was still developing to some degree, yet Timothy was a solid, seasoned spiritual leader who firmly believed the Scriptures. Not a man waffling in his faith. Yet Paul instructs him to hold to what you have firmly believed. To hold to this truth that God has revealed. And it reminds us that we all need encouragement to hold fast to the written word of God the rest of our lives. We are always vulnerable to wandering from the, from the faith, from the truth, in belief and or in behavior. Paul now, uh, he introduces rather a unique motivation for Timothy to hold fast to the word of God. It's unique in some ways to scripture in some sense, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Timothy's teachers we find in chapter 1 and verse 5 were his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. His father was an unbeliever. Certainly we would include in this the Apostle Paul himself, verse 10, and the example that he has left. Timothy, remember your mom. Remember your grandmother. Remember my life and the pattern that was there for you to follow. Remember us. Remember how your mother and grandmother faithfully taught you the scriptures. You know their character. You know their godly example. You know their love for you. That's important. You've seen the way they faithfully handled the scriptures. They didn't take the word of God and twist it into whatever they wanted it to say at the moment. They didn't use it as a bludgeon against you to get their will. They faithfully taught you the scriptures. They honored it with their lives. They were not like the false teachers in verse 5 who only feigned godliness. They were genuine, as was the apostle himself. Again, verse 10. So do not abandon 
that sacred trust, he pleads with Timothy. Let me turn this then to address us and those of you who are younger among us. You're living with mom and dad right now. You're finding your way and you're growing up under their instruction. I would like to say to you that the heritage of Bible teaching that you have in this church is a gift from God to you. If your parents read the scriptures in your home and strive to honor it, that is a double blessing of God to you. You're going to find as life goes on, as God gives you life and as opportunities develop, you're going to find a lot of people in this world who will counsel you and pressure you to follow godless philosophies and godless way of living. I want to tell you the truth about those people. They do not love you. And you will prove that someday when their philosophies and their practices bring great trial and heartache into your life. They won't be there anymore. They won't care unless simply to carry on your sin and theirs with you. They'll abandon you when those philosophies and sinful practices prove false and bring misery upon your life. I say that because I've seen it time and time again with consistency. There's also with this a dangerous temptation for you as a young person. I remember this temptation like it was yesterday. But there's kind of this sense that I show my maturity by rejecting the faith of my parents. I show my maturity by thinking differently than them. Coming up with my own ideas and my own rules. Well, let me say to you that maturity includes knowing which beliefs and practices you should never abandon or alter for the rest of your life. That's maturity. There are some th things that we will set aside. But there are beliefs, there are truths taught to us. That's a gift. Don't ever turn from what you should not abandon. Eden Baptist Church, young person, is teaching you God's Word. The truth that provides salvation from sin and its eternal judgment that is found in Jesus Christ alone. The only mature response is to hold fast to the sacred trust until the day that you meet Jesus. You are highly privileged if there are people teaching you that body of truth. Know that. Cling to it. And obviously, we as adults, there's a, uh, and the older generations, there's a message to us here as well. We cannot control or change the hearts of our children. No sin that we commit ever excuses theirs. We understand that, yet we are reminded here of the unique importance of living a life that honors God. Is your home plagued with sinful argumentation between you and your mate? Do your kids struggle to see that your walk with God is more important to you than your love of possessions and earthly pleasures and pursuits? Do they struggle to see your submission to the will of Christ in your daily life? This church has a sacred trust 
to teach the scriptures to the next generation, but this is an important calling then for our teachers at every teaching venue, at every age level within the assembly. But it is utterly essential that we pass on this heritage through parents who conduct a life that is faithful to the Lord. Whose living, whose aim of life, whose faith, whose patience, love, steadfastness, and willingness to suffer for Christ adorn that message. Why is this so important? Because the Holy Scriptures, the end of verse 15, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so important. The Bible does not save us from sin, Jesus does, and yet the scriptures are the very words of God, such that what the Bible says, God says. What God says and does, the Bible does. And so we can say of the scriptures, as James does in chapter 1 and verse 21, he speaks of the implanted word, the word which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the revealed word of the living God tells us who Jesus is. It tells us who we are in our sin. It tells us what Jesus did to save us from our sin. And it speaks to us of the proper response in receiving that salvation as a gift through repentant faith in Christ. This is the entrustment. This is the body of truth that's been given to us. And if you're here today separated from Christ, you've not come to place your saving faith in Him. This Word delivers that message. It is there as a body of truth for you to trust, to heed, to put your faith in who Jesus is and what He has done in His death and resurrection to save sinners then we receive His righteous standing as an act of His grace. This message is revealed to us. It is able to make us wise for salvation. We notice secondly here in your sanctification, and we don't want to draw too much of a distinction between salvation and sanctification. In fact, sanctification can be used of salvation just as directly as the word salvation so we don't uh, divide those too much but here thinking of it specifically in the area of the growth of the Christian life in our sanctification value what God's word is and does so in coming to know Christ as Savior we must hold fast to the inheritance of his word and then as we grow as Christians we must value what God's word is and what it does Verse 16, what it is, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture, that's the Greek word meaning writing. Scripture refers to every sacred text God intends His people to identify as His written word. We speak of it as the Bible. It is breathed out by God. This phrase refers to the originating source of the Holy Scriptures. Where does it come from? teaches us then what it is. So in a derivative sense, we learn that Scripture is this. Figuratively speaking, God's exhaled words of Scripture. They are the product of His creative speech. We noted 
last week in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit carried along the authors of Scripture to say exactly, to write exactly what God wanted them to say using their human capacities, allowing for their distinctive idiosyncrasies as writers. But the final product of the original text was the breathed out word of the living God, and is so. We speak of this in doctrinal studies as the doctrine of what? The doctrine of inspiration. I, I don't know where we got off track with that. I wish that the, the title would be the doctrine of expiration. But the problem is that word has some problems too, doesn't it? It, it, it kind of thinks we think of death, of uh, losing it, something like that. But expiration is really the more proper term in that the scriptures are breathed out by, by the Spirit of God as he carries along the authors. So let me say this pointedly. The deeply held conviction of Eden Baptist Church is that since the scriptures are the product of God's creative breath, since they originate with Him, since the Holy Spirit carried along the writers in the process, Scripture is without error. These words are the very words of the living God, such that what the Bible says, God says. And since God is the ultimate author of Scripture, we are right to infer that no two texts will ever contradict one another. We may not be able to see how they work together. It may look like a discrepancy to our eyes. But no two texts will ever contradict one another because there is ultimately one author. Using human authors with their capacities fully engaged to write what they want to write, not just taking down dictation. But that one ultimate author preserves the Holy Scriptures from error. Now there's some clarifications that we need to introduce. First of all, let's notice that it is the words of Scripture, not the authors of Scripture, that are inspired. A scholar may speak of Shakespeare as an inspired poet. We understand what that means, but that's not how 2 Timothy 3.16 is using the word. The breathed out word of God is the source of the text. The breathed out word of God is the source or the origin of the text of Scripture. So Sunday school teachers... Those who teach in our Bible classes, I encourage you as we're teaching the younger generation, don't say the Apostle Paul was inspired by God. In some literary sense, that's accurate, but not what, it's not what we mean. Don't say that the Apostle Paul was inspired by God. It's a common mistake, not the end of the world, but it is an error. We should not take the inspiration of Scripture to be that of the author's but of the text. Another clarification, we should not take the inspiration of the entire Bible to mean that all Scripture is equally important, interesting, or heartwarming. 
I think of the story of Simeon and Anna rejoicing at the temple in response to years of prayer as the Messiah is brought and they hold him in their arms. I mean, that's heartwarming. Not so much with skin diseases in Leviticus. That's just supposed to be gross. It's not that important in that sense. It's not heartwarming in that sense. The account of Jesus' resurrection is far more important far more important to our faith than, say, King David's recovery of the city of Ziklag or Paul's sea journey to Rome. All that said, every text of Scripture is God's Word. And it has an important place in the whole. It's actually part of our text to discern what is most important and how everything that is even the gross parts fit into the overall picture of all that God wants us to know in his written word. That's what the word is. It is the breathed out, inerrant, without error word of the living God. What does the word do? What power does it have? What does it accomplish? We see that in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God's word is serviceable. It is useful. It is beneficial, advantageous to our spiritual walk in that it provides teaching. God's word reveals truth which provides spiritual light in this dark world. This is the word of the Lord. This is the truth of God. Secondly, it provides reproof. That is, God's word is useful. It is powerful to reveal everything in our lives that falls out of sync with the nature of God. It rebukes sin. Scripture is intended to show us where we break the law of God, where we get out of line with God. It is good for correction. That is, it steers us back onto the path of righteousness. It stops us and alerts us to our sin, but then it brings us onto the right road. And then on that road, it provides training in righteousness. That is, Scripture encourages our spiritual growth and formation into the likeness of Christ. Someone has put it simply this way. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The Bible teaches us what is right, It teaches us what is wrong. It teaches us how to make the wrong right. And it teaches us how to keep things right. All along the way, it directs and instructs and encourages that, verse 17, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That man of God is certainly Timothy here, but the man of God is the one who is new in Christ, the new man in Christ, the church of the living God. That man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Jesus saves sinners from hell and he fits them for heaven, but Jesus also saves sinners for good works here in this life. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We see this in Titus 2 and verse 14 who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's the rescue part. 
and then also to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the saving plan of the living Christ. So in God's eternal plan, he chooses to save his people and to equip them for every good and righteous work. And God's written word, the scriptures, his breathed out word is the mechanism that God uses to bring us to spiritual maturity and to give us spiritual skill in living. So know this, brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. There is no philosophical system, there is no psychological construct, there is no purchase that you can make, there's no social system, there's no legacy of faith even that can ever substitute for or surpass the power of God's word to transform his people and to equip them for righteousness. It is this book that is our guide. It will empower righteous living as we believe it and follow it. The Holy Scriptures are wholly sufficient for life and godliness, for faith and practice. As we come to chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5, Paul shifts his address to focus on Timothy's public ministry of the Word. The application to each of us is not direct. We're not all pastors of local churches. And yet, this instruction is applicable to each of us on a couple of levels. First of all, to understand the public ministry of the Word, which the entire church must support and encourage. But secondly, there is a sense in which it's applicable to each of us because God is equipping us through the Word to minister that word to one another. We may not do that in a formal sense, but he is equipping us to minister the word of God to one another. So Timothy stands at the head of that endeavor in the church at Ephesus, and Paul says to him, in your ministry then, thirdly, preach God's word with fidelity. This word is able to save the soul hold fast to it. This word equips the believer for every good work. Value it. Know where it comes from and know what it does. But now, Timothy, let's talk about your work there in Ephesus. And Eden Baptist Church, let's talk about our work with one another. It is this, preach God's word with fidelity. Verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. That imperative there to preach controls these verses 1 through 5. Paul is so earnest here that he charges Timothy by first invoking the living Christ. He invokes our Lord who at his return, verse 1, will stand as judge of those who are still living. He will stand as judge of those who have already died. And Christ, as the final judge, will require no jury. He will be the only prosecutor, the only defender. And he will render final, eternal, and perfect justice. 
As Jesus will establish his kingdom at his appearing, Timothy ministers now before the watchful eyes then of the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the eyes of that king, preach the word. Proclaim that breathed out word of the living God in the text of Scripture. Preach it. The word means to herald. Ancient heralds were commissioned to declare the king's will boldly, distinctly, accurately, and with authority. Heralds were not called to invent or alter messages. That's not how you got points uh, as a herald. That's how you lost your head as a herald in that day. Their task was to make the king's will known at each stop along the journey. Timothy must explain and apply God's word to God's people. In fulfilling that task, Timothy was to, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. To be ready in season and out of season. There will be times Timothy finds preaching God's word difficult. At those times, he must preach the word. There will be times people receive the word gladly and times they will not. He must preach the word. There will be times speaking God's truth proves dangerous. He must preach the word. He must reprove. That's part of the preaching ministry. To expose people's sin in light of God's law and to labor for their sense of conviction. He must rebuke. There are times when he must confront those who refuse to turn from their violation of God's will. He must exhort to urge, admonish, encourage people to walk in the right way with complete patience and teaching. That is, he must not be easily irritated with people. He must not give up on them or hope to wash his hands of them. He must not despair when people falter. He must patiently and persistently point people to align their lives with God's truth. This is the work. This is what you must do, Timothy. This is what the church should look like. Ever disseminating that word with patient correction and instruction. That's interesting here to compare chapter 3, verse 16 with chapter 4 and verse 2. Really the same thing going on. What he said there in 3.16, he's now saying put into practice in your public ministry of the word. We have the preaching, the reproof, the correction or rebuke, and the training in righteousness. The exhortation that leads people to believe what is right and do it. And again, this applies to all of us. It applies to every one of us in some sense. I was at a uh, visit here in, uh, to one of our member families in the assembly, and uh, one responded that the, the wife responded that she gave great thanks for the women of this church. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. I'm glad that the women of this church are an encouragement to her. But then she said something I didn't see coming. And she said, because I know when I get off track, they help me think straight from Scripture. I paraphrase. That's even more beautiful. 
to know that there are women in the church that are ministering the word to one another to keep life on track, to continue to persevere and endure to the end. Wow. It was beautiful. Little bodies that went squirming up the aisles here just a little bit ago. What's going on there? Well, we're getting them out of here so that they don't disturb things. Really? What's going on back there is there are young children that are being trained to understand that what happens in here is the dissemination of the Word of God. And so back there, they're being roped in and trained to how do you respect the Word of God when it's being taught. It's not going to be by pulling her hair. It's not going to be by kicking him. It's not going to be by standing up and running around. It's going to be by respecting what's happening. And so, as we work, they have some in here for a little while and then send them out. It's stages. It's bringing them to respect the preaching of the word in assembly. Now I thank God for that inheritance and for what is happening right now with a lot of young bodies right here. That's not through some sort of harsh external control. It's through appeal to the conscience to understand that the word of the living God is being proclaimed amidst the people of God and to respect that. So thankful for those that labor to that end and for our families that labor. And I know it's work. We sweat bullets the first time our kids came in here for the first time in a morning service. It's not going to work. But it does. Little by little, all of us understanding they're just kids. But there's a work that's going on here. There's a lot that's going on. Verse 3, all this against, here's the other side, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Itching ears. Desperate desire for the good feeling of scratching that itch. You've been there. Your ear is itching and your hands are full and you put that thing down finally and oh, does that feel good to scratch that ear. That's the picture. We want preachers that tell us what we want to hear. A natural desire to hear what we want to believe. A natural desire to hear something new. Something fresh, something interesting, something we've never heard before. Two very enthusiastic young women talked to me some years past about a pastor who was teaching them all kinds of things they'd never heard. They were so excited. And they told me what was going on. I was so discouraged. (laughs) The reason you've never heard those things before is because they're not true, they might be interesting. They might be new. That doesn't make it good. The danger in this is that the all-sufficient word of God is set aside for myths, 
for intellectual fantasies, for spiritual deceptions and foolish living. People want to hear, for instance, that they can love God and money. And you can find preachers to tell you just that. They want to hear that America is a Christian nation and Jesus a glorified politician. They want to hear that we should feel good about ourselves and are free to excuse every sin as resulting from somebody else's sin against us. People want to hear that Jesus offers salvation while making no real claim on our lives and preserving us against all suffering, all myths. They're just myths. Yet, stepping forward are all manner of self-serving teachers who devise pleasing messages as they troll for money and for accolades to itch, to scratch itching ears, to tell people what they want to hear. God's Word tells us more than we want to hear, more beauty than we could have ever designed or ever imagined. But it also confronts us which is the meaning for rebuke and reproof and correction we need to be trained in righteousness we don't need to go to church to find somebody saying something that makes us feel good and is new and novel and exciting we need to be directed by the word of god to change and that's what's going on here By the grace of God. So you, however, so in contrast, verse th- chapter 3 and verse 10, you, however, but as for you, chapter 3 and verse 14, as for you, chapter 4 and verse 5, it's very clear what Paul's doing here. Against the backdrop of these false teachers telling you what you want to hear, as for you, verse 5, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Hold fast to God's word. Persevere in faithful, godly, holy living. Keep your head about you. Don't be pulled into false teaching. Be willing to pay the price. Proclaim the gospel to the lost and to the saved. Fulfill your ministry. Take your faith to the finish line. And Eden Baptist Church, we must do exactly the same thing. We will not prosper, we will not hear well done, good and faithful servant from our Savior if we do not hold fast to God's revealed, breathed out word. That is our calling, we have been saved to that, it is our salvation to the very end. So in our salvation we must cling to that word that brings us that salvation in Christ. And in our sanctification, let us remember the scriptures originate with God, they come from his creative breath, and they are all sufficient for all that God calls us to do. And may we in our ministry as a church value the teaching and preaching of scripture. May we learn to defend it against false teachers and teach it one to another with fidelity. There's a lot going on around here. And in this body of believers, the written word of God is ministered for the salvation of the lost. 
It is ministered for the edification of believers and the proclamation of Christ to a dying world. This church, all of us, must give ourselves to preach the word. So whether in season or out of season, let us hold fast to that breathed out word of the living God. Our eternal souls rest on it. Our Christian growth depends upon it. And the health and fidelity of this church hinges upon it. May God give us grace. Let's seek him in prayer. Father, we praise you for this reminder. It is no news to this church for those that have walked together in fellowship and in covenant for some length of time. We understand this heritage. We rejoice in it. We're thankful for this calling and know what it means in our life and for our spiritual growth and security for the health of this assembly. But Lord, we also know that we are under relentless attack to change the pattern, to change the message, to operate differently. And we recognize humbly, Father, that we don't understand everything. We don't see ourselves as we should. We know that we fall short. And yet, God, I thank you for the heritage of faith in this assembly. That book after book, passage after passage, verse by verse and word by word, this church has continued through the years to hold high your word as it illumines your glory and points us to Christ. We're thankful for this heritage. I pray in behalf of our young people, God, as they see this word taught and demonstrated in this assembly, I pray that they would have the maturity to know what to hold on to. They would not turn from the truth simply because it's familiar or because mom and dad held to it, but that they would realize that this is the breathed out word of the living God and while every adult that they ever meet will fail them, and prove in some way hypocritical. I pray that they would not then throw Jesus away. I pray that they'd love your word and realize it has been a trust that is a great gift to them. I pray, Father, for those who teach the word to our young people and to one another formally and informally. Father, may we love this truth. Teach us as a church to speak the truth to one another. To see that growing more and more in our assembly is a natural way of life. To speak the truth of Scripture. I pray, Father, that that word would go forth from us. That we would do the work of the evangelist. That we would proclaim the truth that is in Christ, the salvation that is found in Him alone in the Scriptures, which bear witness to that salvation. We lay these requests at Your feet, and we do pray, Father, in light, or, or for those who are in the darkness, have not seen this light. We plead, Father, that You'd open their eyes to this truth, and that they'd embrace it warmly, trustingly, faithfully, and that you will continue to bring people to saving faith in Jesus. 
We pray that you would allow that faith then to be displayed and announced to this assembly in the waters of baptism. We thank you for the baptism that is coming up and we just pray that you will continue to draw people to Christ through the ministry of the word in this assembly. Change us and transform us, we ask, in the name of our Savior. Amen.